Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies and another edition of A Very Merry Bluthmas. So, last two weeks, we have talked about a couple of different Don Bluth movies that were ultimately not financially successful and that actually ended up kind of kind of damaging uh, Bluth's attempts to continue on. I mean, Titan AE did a lot of damage to him and ultimately led to, you know, the closure of Don Bluth's studios in 2000 and has been why we haven't gotten another movie since then. And then we did Rockadoodle last week and that killed the initial Bluth Sullivan Studios. And while I enjoy both of those movies, I think it's time we go ahead and talk about one of his truly best movies. We're going to be talking about the 1982 animated movie, The Secret of Nim. Of course, it was directed by Don Bluth, who has, you know, directed both movies we talked about last week and several others. This was actually the first feature he directed as director. Like, not assistant director, not being attached in production. Like, no, no, this was his first full-on directed movie that he had done. It was also written by a team including Gary Goldman, who, again, this is the same team that he's worked with with all of his other movies. It was made on a budget of about $7 million and pulled in $14.7 million at the box office and was released by MGM on July 16th, 1982. It's based on a book, and I'm going to get to that a little bit later. Uh, a Newbery award-winning book from the 70s called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. I absolutely loved that book as a kid. And... I actually read the sequel that was written by the original author's uh, daughter, who the original author had passed away. And the sequel book, to me, held up just as well as the first book. This movie also spawned a sequel without Don Bluth's involvement or direction of any kind. I have never seen Timmy to the Rescue, the, the Rats of Nim sequel. I've, I've never seen that. This movie is fantastic. Uh, it achieved critical acclaim when it first came out uh it, it holds up it's one of those few i know i've said this before and i'll say it again it's one of the few movies i can think of that is based on a book that despite the changes they made for it it holds up against the book very well and uh ultimately this this is a movie that could have actually been made by disney but we'll get to that in a minute too now the majority of the uh voice cast for this movie is uh, deceased at this moment <laughs> and you know I, I hate that that keeps happening here but we're talking about movies that were made in the 80s and early 90s by voice actors who had been active for decades so unfortunately it's going to happen the lead character of mrs brisby that's mrs brisby not mrs frisby that's another thing i'll get to in a minute was voiced by elizabeth hartman who passed away in 1987 elizabeth hartman had an academy award nomination for her role in a patch of blue as well as multiple golden globe nominations for her role in the Francis Ford Coppola film, You're a Big Boy Now. She was also in The Beguiled and the 1973 Walking Tall. This movie was the final film role of Elizabeth Hartman's career and life. She killed herself by throwing herself out of a window. I'm not here to talk about all of that, what went into that happening, but good lord, that's... Yeah, so... Moving on, the voice of Jeremy the Crow was voiced by Dom DeLuise, who passed away in 2009. Now, I love Dom DeLuise. He's got a very distinctive voice and physical appearance later in life when he began putting on weight. Um, theatrically, he did a lot of work with Mel Brooks. 
Uh, he was in Blazing Saddles. He was in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Smarter Brother. But he also appeared in the Muppet movie, Smokey the Bandit 2, uh, A History of the World Part 1, Cannonball Run 1 and 2. He also voiced multiple characters throughout his run of voice acting with Don Bluth. He was in An American Tale. He was uh, provided a voice in Oliver and Company. Uh, he was in the spinoff slash sequel to Snow White that most people I have spoken to have never seen before that I owned on VHS called Happily Ever After. He voiced the magic mirror in that. One day I plan on talking about that movie as a retrospective review because that movie's a, a train wreck in a lot of ways. But uh, Don DeLuise has been in a lot, almost too many to mention. He, he has a son who is an actor as well, and they actually shared the screen once on television in an episode of Third Rock from the Sun which is a fantastic show as well. So, moving right along, the character of Justin, who is the male rat who is kind of left open-ended if there's romantic things between him and uh, Mrs. Frisbee, Brisbee, rather, uh, was voiced by Peter Strauss. Now, Peter Strauss has mostly been known for television shows. However, he has appeared on a film called The Last Tycoon. And he had a lot of appearances in Hawaii Five-O and in the Mary Tyler Moore show. The character of Mr. Ages, who is a longtime friend of Mrs. Brisby's uh, husband before he passed away in the movie, was voiced by Arthur Mallet, who passed away in 2013. Arthur Mallet was in Mary Poppins, The Heat of the Night, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Young Frankenstein, and he provided a voice in The Black Cauldron. Nicodemus, the leader of the Rat Colony, was voiced by Derek Jacoby. Now, Derek Jacoby has had a very long stage career. Very long. It would honestly take far too long to mention all of his stage credits that he has been in, so I'm just going to go and give you a couple of movies. Uh, Othello, Hamlet, he was in Gladiator, he was in Nanny McPhee, Underworld Evolution, The Golden Compass, Murder on the Orient Express, the 2018 Tomb Raider, and the 2019 semi-biographical film Tolkien. He, he's been in a lot. Uh, if you've seen Gladiator, he was Gracchus. That's probably the best one I can tell you on that one. Jenner, who is the villain of the movie was voiced by Paul Shinar, who passed in 1989. Uh, this was one of his first film roles that he had done, and he would go on to be in Man on Fire, Raw Deal, uh, Deadly Force, and The Big Blue, as well as a lot of television show episodes in the 70s and 80s. However, without question, he's best known for his appearance in Scarface. The Great Owl was voiced by John Carradine, who passed in 1988. You know how I said a minute ago that uh, Derek Jacoby's Stage credits would be far too numerous to mention. That's exactly how John Carradine is. He has been in so many Shakespearean productions over the years that I would literally have to sit here for five minutes going through half of them just to feel like I've done the man justice on that. So uh, I'll talk about him at a later date. Uh, he is the patriarch of the Carradine family. He has four sons, four daughters, and multiple grandchildren, many of whom were or are actors, including David Garradine, who was in Kung Fu and Kill Bill. The character of Auntie Shrew was voiced by Hermione Baddeley, who died in 1986. This woman began acting in 1927. So again, this is a woman that has a very, very, very long list of acting credits. But I'll give you a few, including Unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, she also was in Mary Poppins. The Adventures of Bullwit Griffin, and she provided a voice in The Aristocats. There's a bunch of little characters that have like little sidelines in the movie. You, you, you see them for a moment and whatnot. The only one of note to me is that one of Mrs. Brisby's children's was voiced by Will Wheaton, who of course played Wesley Crusher in the Star Trek TV series. Um, 
Will Wheaton today is probably best known for his slightly fictionalized version of himself he has portrayed on The Big Bang Theory. Let's dive into the development of this movie because there's there's some interesting things with this. Uh, Disney was actually offered the rights for the book back in 1972 and turned it down. Don Bluth and 10 others left Disney Studios in 1979 to form their own production company. We covered this at the very beginning of the Titan AE episode when I wanted to talk about Don Bluth for a moment. Uh, after writing and producing a shorter film, it, this was done in order to try and gain production skills, and it was also done out of the home and garage of Don Bluth before they finally moved to a larger studio. Uh, they presented that to Disney to try and get Disney to help out, so it would also help them recoup their losses, and Disney had no interest in it. One of the story writers for that short story that was working with Don Bluth had actually read and enjoyed the book, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. She gave it to Don Bluth to read and told him that he should make a film out of it. Bluth had showed this book to Disney executives, and they had turned it down and said, we have no interest in making that movie because we've already got a famous mouse, with Mickey, and we've already done a movie with Mice with the Rescuers. There's no reason for us to do another one right now. You know, uh, about 30 years later we get Ratatouille, but that's beside the point. At this point, Don Bluth was a little upset at their just flat refusal on this, and he showed it to the others who would eventually leave with him to form Sullivan Bluth Studios. This was done shortly after he had finished animation on Pete's Dragon, because Don Bluth was in charge of the animation for the dragon on Pete's Dragon. Uh, about three or four months later, Aurora Productions, who was headed by someone who at the time had worked at Disney and left as well, acquired the rights and offered it to Don Bluth with a roughly $6 million budget and a 30-month schedule. Now, 30 months to produce an animated movie in the late 70s, early 80s was an extremely tight schedule. Disney usually had three to four years at a time to work on their animations, but he agreed to go ahead and do it. Now, what's important to note about all this, if Disney had not passed on this. If Disney had decided, yes, we'll go ahead and make a Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim type movie. It's entirely possible that Don Bluth never would have left Disney Studios. And we would have never gotten the other movies that he produced after leaving Disney. One of the only other issues that he really ran into with development on this, though, was the name Mrs. Frisbee. Whammo, the company that owns the rights to the Frisbee trademark, which that's spelled F-R-I-S-B-E-E, -E, refused to allow them to use the similar Frisbee, F-R-I-S-B-Y, spelling for the movie. This was a problem because they had already recorded 99% of the dialogue and had moved into post-production. This meant that they had to not only go back and re-record some dialogue, but certain actors like Carradine were not available to re-record their lines. So what they had to do with that was kind of go in and like blend the words a little bit and try and make them a little mumbly a little bit to try and get that Brisbee sound instead of Frisbee. Because if they'd have gone ahead and gone with Frisbee, they would have gotten sued for that. Side note, I do firmly believe that Disney would have been willing to pay for the rights to use the Frisbee name, but I digress. The initial written drafts of the movie much more closely resembled the original novel it focused more on the rats and their time at Nim, which was the, I believe, New Hampshire Institute of Mental Health, 
which is a very real thing. Like the book itself is based on the, the very real experiments that they ran on rats between the 1940s and 1960s at this Institute of Mental Health. So that's that's very important to note there. But yeah, you would have focused on more on that, like the book. But um, this was ultimately reduced to a flashback. They also revised it a bit to try and bring Mrs. Brisby more to the forefront of the story. Um, because ultimately the movie and book is about her trying to save her children. However, the book does tend to go off at times and talk about other rats and other things that are happening within this colony. Uh, they had a female rat named Isabella in the initial drafts that would have been a, had a crush on Justin and would have been one of the things that led to Jenner betraying them as he does in the film. However, they felt that that was adding too much, removed her and gave a lot of her dialogue to Nicodemus. Don Bluth also changed it up personally, made rewrites to add mystical elements like the little amulet that Mrs. Brisby wears in the movie, because in his words, animation calls for more magic in order to give it a more fantastical, mystical type of feel. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it worked in this movie. The amulet was meant to be a visual representation of the internal power that Miss Brisby has in trying to save her children. Because it's a very difficult thing to try and get across in animation, uh, the willpower of a character, especially with its, when it's mice or small animals like that. So it was, it, 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 it was, it was a good choice. It really was. Uh, Nicodemus was also altered to make him into a wizard instead of just an, a smart elder rat to try and add mystery to him and the colony as to why they were, rather than them just be a colony of rats that lives in a rosebush. Jenner was revised to make him a main antagonist instead of the... Look, in the book, Jenner is only spoken about briefly as a traitor who left the other rats with some rats of his own to go off and do something. And he's actually the catalyst as to why the scientists at NIM are coming for them at the farm where they're living in the rosebush. So they took him from a quote-unquote traitor character with very little uh, information about him, and they expanded him into quite easily the main antagonist of the film. Uh, in the movie, Justin takes over the colony because Nicodemus passes away, which that does not happen in the book. And also, the rats are who eventually help Mrs. Brisby move her home and help her children to safety. This was changed and only given to her with the magic, Because it, they felt that it wouldn't necessarily, she, it wouldn't show that she had grown any in trying to save them if that had been done the other way. Like they felt like it, it, this is meant to be a movie about her, and if the rats are the ones who are saving them, then she hasn't learned and grown throughout the process of this movie. I'm going to talk about the book itself when I'm done talking about the movie, so I will get to that and I'll elucidate some of the differences that were therein, you know. But for now, I'm mainly just focusing on the movie itself. Uh, casting was pretty simply done. Um, Dom DeLuise was contracted and signed after they, they being, you know, Bluth and his other executives that worked with him, watched him in the movie The End, and they absolutely loved him. They felt he had a great presence of voice in that. Uh, Elizabeth Hartman was cast due to her role in A Patch of Blue. Don Bluth said he was mesmerized by her from the moment the movie started to the moment the movie ended and felt like that she had a very understated yet strong presence and that that would ultimately suit the character of Mrs. Brisby. Jacoby was suggested for Nicodemus after watching the miniseries I, Claudius. That was Goldman that watched that, rather. 
And Strauss signed on from his performance in Rich Man, Poor Man. They loved Shinar's dark and powerful voice, and they felt that that was absolutely paramount to a villainous character like Jenner. So, ultimately, Carradine was very prominent in Shakespearean performances, as I said before. And the Great Owl needed to be this, again, larger-than-life, what is this kind of being kind of voice. So to have a strong Shakespearean voice on that was perfect. Animation on this. They wanted to do their absolute best to keep this as close to golden age animation as possible. Uh, it took them many, many months to do it. They started production in January of 1980 and finished in March of 1982. There were often times where the animators and other workers had to work 110 hour weeks sometimes working without pay to get this thing done they worked with rotoscoping technologies technicolor there were some aspects of it that were hand painted like the backgrounds and whatnot that you see and the ultimate cost of all of this after everything was all said and done was about six and a half million dollars and they were only given about a 5.8 million dollar budget to cover that difference, Don Bluth, Gary Goldman, Sullivan, and the executive producers at Aurora mortgaged their homes to collectively come up with the amount necessary to hit that. Now, that was done with the understanding that the executives at Aurora would be the first ones to be reimbursed after the movie was released. But still, to have mortgaged your homes to make this... like. Don Bluth really put all of his eggs in this basket as best he could. And ultimately, one of my favorite little information, uh, the sword fight that you see between Justin and Jenner, they modeled aspects of that off of the 1930 Robin Hood and the 1954 movie The Vikings. So, that's pretty cool if you ask me. And given this is my show, if you're listening to it, you did ask me. <laughs> when it was released, it had almost no promotion done for it uh one of the animators hand painted the theatrical poster for two months to get it ready for that and it released in they, look they thought it was going to be released in about a thousand different theaters that didn't end up happening its initial release was in as few as 100 theaters and ultimately excuse me ultimately got up to about 700 theaters total one of the problems this movie had with its release is that it was released opposite of E.T. I have never seen E.T. That blows some people's minds. A little more so now that I do a podcast about movies. But I just, I've never had any interest in watching that movie. My older brother swears up and down we've seen it, but he thinks I might have been too young to remember it. I don't, I don't really recall. Uh, now, the funny thing about it being released opposite of E.T. is that E.T. was, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg would go on to work with Don Bluth multiple times over the next two decades. While it was soundly trounced by E.T., its opening performance actually outperformed Poltergeist, Rocky III, Firefox, and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan initially. Which is absolutely outstanding that it did that, but of course it, it was not only going to be able to hold on to that. Between those movies and other summer releases that came out, it ultimately unperformed, underperformed rather, and was considered only a moderate success with a $14.7 million total box office. 
Now, that being said, various releases from home release, cable, and the foreign movie market ultimately led this movie to be a far more profitable and more successful film. I, I think, all told, if you take into consideration home video release over the past several years, the movie has grossed probably close to $40 million, which, adjusted for inflation, is a tremendous success on their end. As I said earlier, it achieved critical acclaim across the board. If, I know I've mentioned them before, and I kind of stopped mentioning them because I don't really care for Rotten Tomatoes, but if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 94%, which is outstanding. Siskel and Ebert gave it two very big yeses, just shy of a thumbs up on that. The animation itself was very widely praised. The only issues that any critics seemed to have with the film was that younger viewers may not be able to relate to many of the characters simply because most of the characters in this movie are either adults or have various plot points and plot controls that they do that very young viewers just probably wouldn't be able to follow as well. And after seeing it as a child and seeing it as an adult, I do get what they're saying, but it... it, it I'll get there. <laughs> It won a Saturn Award for Best Animated Film. It was actually nominated for Best Fantasy Film as well. But it lost that one to The Dark Crystal, which I love The Dark Crystal, so I, I can I can see that. As I said earlier, it has produced a sequel. I have never seen it. I have no desire to see it. From what I understand, the sequel was pretty well received, but I'm very attached to the original two books. And without having any involvement whatsoever from Don Bluth, I don't know if I really want to see a, a sequel to it. However, a remake was announced in 2019 with the Russo brothers attached to direct and produce it. While at the same time, a TV series was greenlit by Fox Studios in September of 2021 this year. So we'll, we'll see what eventually happens with that. Um, I love this movie. I absolutely love it. To me, it is one of the four best pillars of Don Bluth's work that he's done. Those being, of course, uh, Lamp for Time, Secret of Nim, American Tale, Anastasia. Those four movies are the big four that that man produced. Whatever other movies may have unperformed, these right here are what gave that reverence to his name. And The Secret of Nim is absolutely one of those. I mean, I know firsthand many people who loved this movie as children who were traumatized by some of the darker aspects of it. Between the cat, Dragon, the cat's name is Dragon, the great owl uh, scenes involving when Nicodemus is killed, it's... It is one of the very, very few movies I have seen that, when compared to the source material book they're based on, stand up fully on its own, opposite of it. Uh, the book, again, the book mostly focuses on Mrs. Brisby, or Mrs. Frisby, rather, herself. No, I'm sorry. It does not focus on Mrs. Frisby. It focuses mostly on the rats when they are at Nim. In the, in the book, they're not just rats at Nim. There are also some mice. One of the mice would ultimately be Mrs. Frisby's husband and the father of her children. They managed to escape from Nim at the cost of losing several of them and set up their themselves in a colony under a rosebush at the Fitzgibbons farm. Mrs. Frisbee lives in a cinder block that is partially buried out in one of the fields with her children. Every year around plowing season, they have to move to their other home that they have that is closer to the house 
Because if they stay there when he comes through with the plow and everything, they would be killed. However, in the, this time, her youngest son, Timothy, is ill. It's pneumonia, basically. And he's too, even after they get medicine for him, he's too weak to travel. So she goes into the colony to try and get them to help. And they agree to help under a few, circ- uh, a few conditions. One of which they have to help them escape as well. Because Jenner and his other rats that had left the original group went into a hardware store to steal supplies that they felt they would need in order to make themselves their own colony. And they were electrocuted and presumed dead. The problem is... They had exhibited very smart, non-rat-like behavior, which tipped off the scientists from NIM, and they began looking around this area to try and find them. When they found out there was a large rat colony on this farm, one and one makes two. Uh, The rats had set up their rosebush in such a way that they had running lights, water, all that kind of stuff, because they just drew a little bit of power off the main building. But they ultimately did not want to do that. They wanted to have their own home in a valley where they could have all this stuff set up themselves and not have to rely or steal from humans. She has to help them by doing something that actually got her husband killed. Uh, her husband had been killed by the, fam- the, ca- the family cat, Dragon, trying to put something in its food that was going to put it to sleep so that they could get away. She manages to pull this off. However, in the time that she manages to pull this off, they are also able to move her home from that area, move her children out of there, because like we can't move the kids, but we can move the home. So they rig up a system of pulleys and whatnot to get the house out of there. And the scientists at NIM are not only closing in, but they also do it in such a way that they reveal to the farmer that they are there. He hires exterminators to kill them. They escape, but several of their number volunteer to stay behind because if they're all gone, it would heavily imply, okay, these mice are, these rats are smart. They stay. Like, eight or nine of them stay. They die from the poison. Scientists get there, see the dead rats, decide they're nothing more than common rats, and they move on. By the end of the book, Timothy, the youngest child, the one who was sick, is feeling better and has begun to show that he alone of their children seems to have been passed along genetically the enhanced mental capacity that the other mice and rats have. This very real institute, they were studying Alzheimer's, and one of the things they did was try and administer a drug to mice and rats and small animals that would improve their cognitive abilities, like their memory. What happens when you do that? We learned that in the in Deep Blue Sea. You make an animal smarter. So. And again, there's a sequel book called Raxo and the, uh, I think it's Raxo and the Rats of Nim or Timothy and the Rats of Nim. It's been a long time since I've read it, unfortunately, but it involves Timothy going to the valley to be educated with them, and he meets a rat on his way there named Raxo, which Raxo's awkward Oscar backwards. Raxo is the son of Jenner, who lived and had moved on into a city area. Of course, he's very jumpy about that. And ultimately, throughout the course of the book, a dam is beginning to be built there that'll flood the valley. They try and sabotage the dam. Somebody does, and then Raxo finds out that it was his father who had come there to try and and save him and do one good thing with his life after what he had done previously. Uh, Again, I'm sorry to have gone off a little 
on that book, but I genuinely enjoyed the book. It won a Newbery Award. If you ever get a chance to read it, read it. I'm sure I've got a, a detail or two wrong here or there. Again, it's been, unfortunately, over 10 years since I've read the book. But um, this movie leaves behind a, a pretty tremendous legacy for those who enjoyed it. Uh, the, great, the Great Owl. I've seen people that have tattoos of The Great Owl, and it looks otherworldly awesome. Um, animation's on point. You can find this movie for free on YouTube sometimes. Uh, it's one of those movies that they sometimes show on YouTube, sometimes it's not. It was released on Blu-ray in 2011. It has not been re-released since then, and I don't know that it will be unless... Look, the only way I think that a lot of Don Blues movies are going to get suddenly re-released on DVD or Blu-ray in some sort of collection is going to happen when the man passes away, which hopefully is not anytime soon because he is going to... He is kind of aiming to make another movie here soon. We'll see what happens. But this was The Secret of Nim. There will not be an episode next week. Because next week, one week from today, I'm as of today recording, I'm recording this on December 18th on Saturday. One week from today is Christmas Day. For the holidays, I will not be releasing an episode on that day. However... In order to finish out Bluthmas before the year is over, the final episode of Bluthmas, Anastasia, will drop on the 31st instead of the usual Sunday that it releases on, which will be a Friday, I believe. And then there won't be an episode on that Sunday. However, the following Sunday, we will be back with normal Kid Kong at the movies. And again, I'll be starting off with Dragon Ball Evolution. After that, I'm not exactly sure what will be coming out. Um, I will keep you guys posted on that. There are aspects of my personal life that might take precedence that will possibly mean a delay in an episode after that. We'll see. Um, nothing bad, folks. Don't think it's anything bad at all. It's just things happen. Things got to be done. You know what I mean? So again, this was The Secret of Nim. I'm glad you could join me for it. Next up will be Anastasia in two weeks. We will not be doing one for Christmas. I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. I hope you all have enjoyed this Bluthmas so far. And I will see you on the next episode. So I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies.